You ready? Yes. I am ready. <gasps> Welcome ready. to another episode. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Of the award, Gusty. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> after you, please. No, after you. This is why this needs to be recorded so people can see the shenanigans going on. Or what you have to deal with. Backstage. Yeah. Okay, you're drinking. Great. Welcome to another. Ah, oh, son of a. <laughs> I just spit all over my microphone I mean, and my computer. I, I can hear you drinking now. <laughs> oh god that's great physical comedy right there <laughs> okay i'll let you do it for serious all right welcome to another episode of the award goes to with patrick and lauren where we celebrate the films that have won best picture throughout the years and discuss the history of filmmaking one oscar winner at a time i'm one of your hosts patrick pizzolarusso and with me is lauren olipra yay, yay. hey lauren yay. Uh, oh it's a very quiet audience <laughs> Yeah, but they're all in your booth cheering for you. I know. <laughs> I have a good support system. I have none. <laughs> well, on this episode, the award goes to... The Life of Emile Zola. Yay! It won Best Picture in 1937. And uh, uh, as we talked about in the last episode, which was a biopic of Ziegfeld, uh, Warner Brothers went, hey. <laughs> they really liked doing biopics yeah. back then. MGM. Do you call it biopic or biopic? I call it biopic. If you want to sound smart, but no, I think it's a biopic. But it's a biography. Biopic. 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 Let's do a vote. (laughs) All right. (laughs) On Instagram, I think we need to do a vote. We should do that. Those of those of you listening, do you say biopic or do you say biopic? I'll try to write it out phonetically. (laughs) <laughs> it'll just be like two. It'll be the same thing. Like, it'll I have to draw. People will be, <laughs> they'll be so confused. That means they have to listen to the podcast to understand it. That's it's right. an inside thing. Oh, you're going to miss out. You're missing out if you're not listening in. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that sounds good. You're missing yeah. Out listening in. Uh, well, Warner Brothers decided let's let's do our own bioopic. And uh, <laughs> this is the life of Emile Zola. Uh, it won Best Picture. It also won Best Actor in a Supporting Role, which went to uh, Joseph Schildkraut, and it won Best Writing Screenplay. And uh, it was actually based on a book called uh, Zola and His Time. It stars Paul Muni, Gail Sondergaard, and Joseph Schildkraut, who won that. Joseph Sauerkraut. Sauer. When I see his name, I just keep thinking Sauerkraut. Schildkraut. I think that's fine. I mean, when you see my name, you think pizza. So yeah, that's true. That's fair. I do think. Although I think after this movie, I'm going to start going as Pizzola Russo. Uh Oh, was that bad? You should make a identity decision based on a movie you once saw. Yeah, to change everything. Yep, I think that makes sense. Yeah, the poster. When I was going to uh, watch this, I had to look it up on Amazon Prime. Did you? Amazon Prime for you. Yeah, it's more of an obscure movie now, even though it won tons of awards. But I don't know if you noticed, but the poster that comes up when you look for it on Amazon is a close-up of Paul Mooney playing Emile Zola. And I thought it was Alec Baldwin. (laughs) (laughs) It looks like Alec Baldwin. 
<laughs> you got to take a look at this, it. It looks like Alec Baldwin. I have this right at hand. Hold on. <laughs> How did you no not way. see this? It does look like Alec Baldwin. Yes. It looks like Alec Baldwin circa Beetlejuice. Yes. Yeah. A you know, younger, like a younger Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin, Baldwin. For sure. Yeah. Uh, huh. So Paul Muni and uh, Alec Baldwin. Yeah. And um, Paul Muni in this movie playing Zola played Zola for the majority of the movie as the older version of Zola, although he did play, I don't know, like a 30-year-old Zola in the beginning. And from what I understand, he was a really good-looking guy. And Warner Brothers, uh, the head of Warner Brothers at the time, was a little upset, got frustrated with him because every movie that he would be in, he would use makeup and and disguise himself. He was kind of like, you know, what Johnny Depp does, where Johnny Depp is a really good looking dude, but loves to play ugly characters. Well, it was kind of the same story with Paul Muni, where the the head of Warner Brothers is like, well, we've got this guy (laughs) under contract. I feel like we're spending all of our money on this good looking guy and he keeps hiding himself. (laughs) It's true. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, the the quote from it was actually Jack Warner. He uh, his oh, actual Jack. quote is, "Why are we paying him so much when we can't even find him?" Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. That's really good. I mean, I yeah. guess he's also like uh, like one of the Barrymore brothers who did all the character work, who uh, would do prosthetics and stuff like that too. We talked about mm-hmm. that a little bit in in Grand Hotel, but uh, uh, that's interesting that he was like, "Yeah, yeah, no, I got this. Just layer on." Lay on all the makeup. Yeah, but he was, I mean, he was just such a really, I, I I honestly didn't know anything about this movie, nothing about Zola, nothing about the actors in it, but it's, this guy, Paul Muni, was really freaking talented. I was- Really good in it. I was really impressed with what he did in this movie. Were you, his acting skills? I was. I loved his characterization of Zola. I loved his physicality uh, and how he, he handled himself starting young like you said mm-hmm. at that flat in in Paris and then and then aging himself and then at the end of the movie uh i feel like he tries to regain some of that that youthful spirit that that fire that drove him when he was younger and and he suddenly had like this this new bounce to his step and his energy yeah. he just but he never looked like a young him. person playing an old person no right he looked like a legitimately older man Absolutely. And to be honest, the um the first the the film was actually shot in reverse order, uh, because Paul Mooney had to grow out his own beard for the older part of the role, and then they filmed the beginning scene when he's younger, at the end, so that they could cut off and do the makeup appropriately, do the makeup appropriately for being a younger version of Zola. I remember having a thought in this, uh, thinking that 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 beard does not look like a fake beard. Yeah, uh, it looks like I was like, that's really good makeup. Yeah, because <laughs> it looks real. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, that, but the, he did he did undergo three and a half hours of makeup each morning to play the older Zola. But the from what I understand, the beard was real. Oh, interesting. Yeah, interesting. Well, a quick synopsis. Yeah, his beard is method. It well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure his beard has a credit on that. <laughs> that's what yeah. won the Oscar that year. We'll find it later. <laughs> Uh, really, really quick synopsis. Um, the famed writer, Zola, risks his reputation to defend a Jewish army officer accused of treason. And one of the things I really liked about this movie that that makes it very different from The Great Ziegfeld is that The Great Ziegfeld was like, okay, <laughs> Flo Ziegfeld, this is your life. And we go through everything. And this, 
I would say that, yeah, we saw him growing up and we saw, well, not growing up, but we saw sort of the foundation of who he is, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't, it was snapshots of his life. It wasn't this, this (laughs) trudge through this man's life. In chronological order, yeah. In chronological order. But the second half focused on the trial. So it it was right. more like about one event, one one defining event in his life. Yeah, m- mostly when he was older. Yeah, and the few things that that led him to that, but it wasn't about. And then after leaving France, he went on to. I don't need to know. <laughs> this about was all the all day he ate a piece of pie. <laughs> and he thought. Pie. <laughs> no, so yeah, I agree with you. The very first scene is when he's younger. You get a kind of a foundation for where he's coming from. He's. Uh, struggling he's in a real poor position with well, he's absolutely with a starving artist yeah you know, and he is the chooses to be artist. so too because from what i gathered he didn't have to be but he chose to be uh for yeah. his art um and then shortly after it bounces to him being older and i'm already set for this movie where i'm gonna watch his whole life unfold <laughs> and then it just bounces up to where he's older and i'm like oh whoa wait did this movie just go by really quick? Or I'm on board with this. Yeah, I know. I kind of was. Yeah, I kind of was. <laughs> uh, yeah, it it skips things because it's telling the specific story of this trial. So the things that we see in his past were specifically for the foundation for that, which was great. I loved it. You love the movie? I mean, I, 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 do, I don't want to say I love the movie, but I really, really enjoyed the movie. Would it be one of my top ten movies? No, but yeah. um, I thought it was. I thought it was paced really well. At no point was I trying to figure out how much time I had left. I thought, oh, this is- I did the whole time. You did the yeah. whole time. Yeah, <laughs> I did. I mean, which was why com- I got super excited when he bounced to like getting old so soon. I'm like, <gasps> he's gonna oh. die, and the movie's yeah. over. <laughs> I know, that sounds really bad. Although I did learn. Like, I had no idea. Did you know who Zola was before this movie? So I knew, I didn't know who he was, but I know of the trial. Oh, okay. Yeah, because the, and what we can get to that later, but the I accuse Mm -hmm. is something that pops up in pop culture all the time. It does, it does. All the time. Yeah. And so I knew that. And then once, once I started doing just a quick little basic research of this, I went, oh, that's, I didn't know what it was from until now. And I connected the, the dots. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, it's from him and from that skating letter he wrote to the president. Yeah. So I do appreciate what I learned from this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but the actual entertainment factor was kind of another issue for me. But I did really love watching Paul Muni work. Yes. And I think maybe great. I liked it because uh, it was something new that I didn't really know about, but also because it was being told in, I feel like, a much better way than The Great Zigfield. I enjoyed The Great Zigfield. I mean, I did, but we also had the 45 minutes of singing. Uh, yeah. I mean, of the story, I enjoyed it. The dance numbers. <sighs> yeah. They're just I mean, a very different Five minutes style. of them would have been fine, in my opinion. Sure. That's all you had yeah. to do. Five minutes. Yeah. Um, Show me five costumes in five minutes. One of my, mm, I guess one of my, it's not a complaint, but a critique of this film is that in this movie, it's the way it was shot. And in this movie, I felt like I was hyper aware of the point of view of the camera. And it's as if it was, because sh- I know it had to have been shot in a soundstage or on a soundstage, but it almost felt like when we watch a sitcom we know that there's this this wall is missing. We'll never see that wall. And we know that when they sit at a table in a sitcom, there's never some you're never gonna have somebody's back to you. And I felt like all of the shots were set up in that way. Like in the trial, you see I mean, everybody's packed on one side of <laughs> of the courtroom. Yeah. 
And I'm like, that's a really weird choice. But everything was was basically pointed in one direction, and we never saw opposite points oh, of you're view right. you're from right. the camera. I didn't and even I think, think about that because to me that's yeah. very common in these older movies. It didn't even really phase me. I think with some of the other ones, uh, I mean, Grand Hotel, I didn't, I didn't feel that. And Grand Hotel mm. was very, I want to say it was very episodic because each had its own little story in the hotel room. But we did see different points of view within each hotel rooms. Um, Cimarron was all over the place because it was outside. <laughs> Cimarron, was <laughs> Cimarron was just, just crazy. All over the place. <laughs> but this one, I was really hyper aware of I am the camera. Ah. Uh, you know, that point of view of the camera. So it was just interesting of yeah. how it was filmed. And maybe that was because I think this one was completely filmed on a soundstage. I think so, too. Of course, that's speculation. I just want to bring up... Ooh, can that be my segment? I'm going to make a segment. Fun, 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 fun facts with Lauren. Fun facts. Because to me, it was so much more obvious in the credits of this, the opening credits and the closing credits of this movie... Old films, they always have that like shaky, yes. old timey thing, but yes. it was way more pronounced in this one. I don't know if you noticed that. I did. And I okay. don't understand. Yeah. Well, I didn't either. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to research a fun fact. And I <laughs> looked it up. <laughs> like, why do these old films always look like they're, they've had like 16 cups of coffee? Do you have any guesses before I give the reasons? I, I mean, I, my only guess is that somebody was holding the camera, but that is the most impractical <laughs> Who had thing I can ever think of. Who had 16 cups of coffee. And was the cameraman back on, there. He's <laughs> also on like a, a tightrope was standing there. Like, this is the most, this is the only way we can do it. Wow, you, it. Uh, you nailed it. That's exactly yeah, yeah. the reason why. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there are a couple of different reasons. A lot of these credits, how they would make the credits is they would print them out on this transparent paper in a giant roll. So mm -hmm. they'd set the camera up on in a steady shot and aim it at this roll of paper and it would film as they would just, you know, probably had a little crank on the side, I would imagine, but they would just unroll this Okay, that makes sense. You know, this sheet of paper that would scroll in front of the camera. That's automatically gonna give you a little bit of movement there. Um, but also the cameras back then just weren't as steady as they are now. Um, yeah. <laughs> and who knows about the cameramen? <laughs> uh, you know, they smoked a lot of cigarettes, too. That's so what nicotine it was. Probably cigarettes had and coffee. To do with it. <laughs> Film strips would uh, roll through the camera exposing 24 times a second. And uh, the machinery inside, it does a, its best. Um, now that we're in digital, it doesn't really um, apply. But back when they were using film. It would do its best to keep the film perfectly aligned as it would go through the camera. But it would be very common for the, the film to fall out of perfection. And even when it's a minuscule amount, which it would be, it when it's projected onto a 30-foot tall screen, it's going to be a lot more dramatic of a shake. So there is that. And then also some of the lower budget films would use choose to use 16 millimeter cameras as opposed to the 35 millimeter cameras. With 16 millimeter cameras, you had a smaller image area, so the strip of film was much thinner. It didn't produce as high a quality of film, and the steadiness was even worse as far as quality goes. There would often only be one pin holding each frame in place as it went through the camera. So huh. the errors were even, even more noticeable if they used a less quality film. So that is the reason why. And I thought it was always interesting, too, because... 
when it when you're actually watching the movie with the actors, it's not as I don't know if it's as dominant, but it's definitely during the credits where you really see that that I, camera. It's shape. always the credits. There yeah. were definitely Which moments. maybe they're using a less quality. Maybe they're using the 16 oh, millimeter for the credits because for that. yeah, yeah. Save so those are some reasons, some contributing factors to the old timey movie shake. And that was fun facts with Lauren. I love that you talked about the titles, though, because the opening title, which sets up the whole thing, basically says <laughs> this is based on historical events, but it's been changed. So it's now fiction, except when it's not, but it really is. Yeah, I it did notice a, that and I did I, laugh I like, to myself. Wait, wait. But it's a lot like what we put now at the end of our credits. Like this was based on a true story. Some of the names have been changed, blah, blah, blah. Sure. Like an official thing that they have to put in the credits. I wonder if this was the first time that happened. It was just super, super wordy. Figuring it out. Yeah, because it was like a paragraph, a full frame, or excuse me, a full, the full screen. Full screen. I'll throw that up on Instagram because I made sure I took a screenshot of that. Because I read that and went, wait a minute, what did I just read? I want to do a movie about a biopic or a biopic about your life, Patrick. (laughs) And I'm going to have like ninjas and pizza flying everywhere. (laughs) I'm going to be like, this is based on a true story. (laughs) (laughs) But but what's the part that you're going to make up? Oh, you'll be in it. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) That qualifies. This is based on a true person with a true story, this movie needs but to be I did made change now. some things. <laughs> we need to make this. I'm going to start a GoFundMe. <laughs> I think I think we have enough fans that we could crowdsource this film <laughs> with ninjas and pizzas. It's going to be amazing. Wait a Pizza minute. Pizza ninjas. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Your life is really interesting. <laughs> my life is the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle? <laughs> Oh my god, I did describe the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I didn't even mean to do that, but it just turned out. Wait, Lauren, we've been friends for years. Mm-hmm. And and is this what you think of me? <laughs> what? I'm okay with that. <laughs> so, back to Zola. <laughs> uh, you mentioned just early on where he starts out basically a starving artist in... Um, in Paris, and there's a moment where they're they're freezing, and Zola's obsessed with with keeping the windows closed, which which comes into play much Foreshadowing. later. Foreshadowing. Ah! Um, he doesn't like drafts, so he's closing all the windows, and they have no fuel to burn in their little their little stove, their little heater. And uh, Cezanne, by the way, he's friends with Cezanne, like best friends with the French painter Cezanne, and that is true, and it's awesome. I also loved. Cezanne in this. I yeah. loved him as a as a character, as an actor, everything. Yeah. But they decide to start burning some of the books that they have um, that are, are books written about uh, politics and society and things like that. And, uh, and so they throw pieces of paper in this furnace. And my only very thought awkwardly was... Very awkwardly, too. Very awkwardly. Yeah. But my very... My only thought was, have you ever lit paper on fire? Because it is not pleasant. And, and it will burn your eyes it's you shouldn't be burning paper because it it goes up so fast and it will sting your eyes patrick god i guess i guess but the character says on and i'm assuming that he's actually burning paper in real time did it and then you can see in his face this was a terrible idea he has to like (laughs) he blinks and he moves his face out of the way and i thought great this movie is so real except when it's not 
but also when it is. And when they're putting the pe- the paper first into the the wood burner, it's there's no fire in there. They're just <laughs> awkwardly throwing, like placing weirdly crumpled paper in, and then in the next shot, it is ablaze, <laughs> and smoke is coming out. Yeah, we jump ahead, and uh, uh, there's there's a nice scene change from this scene. Um, to the next one um, again it involves my favorite character Cezanne um, Zola gets a job because someone else got him a job by yeah. the way he, he doesn't so get a job for himself the job too. but super excited Yeah. and so they do- start running around dancing or whatever and Cezanne is like twirling around and has a blanket around him and you you can again you can see the the actor not the character at this point you can see the actor going okay I have to hit my mark and I've got to put this blanket in front of the camera because there's a, a transition but yeah. but it works and he puts the, the blanket in front of the camera and then we fade out from that and fade into Zola working at this publishing company I have to say the transitions house. in this movie were creative I, I, they were I did creative. notice them yeah, yeah it was cool was, it was like they were experimenting with them I thought well done and making this it's like it's, it's borderline an art pick because of some of those choices. Some of them were smoother than others. Oh, much smoother. Well, it's all that <laughs> coffee and cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> that was Hollywood. Coffee and cigarettes. Uh, I think it still is. <laughs> and and the, the, the next couple of scenes really just set up that he had integrity as a writer and he really wanted to be a social commentator. And he's starting to write some things that are a little inflammatory to the government, to the military. And his uh, his publisher says, you, you can't do this. Please stop publishing this stuff. <laughs> You're because getting us in trouble. I'm culpable because I'm your publisher. And he refuses to stop. So they fire him, of course. And uh, But he stands by his his beliefs, his morals. Uh, and he gets fired from his, his very first job. But again, like... Th- this sets up later that he will stand up and fight for what he believes in. And for what he believes in is sort of the working class, uh, the lower class. And there, I have to say, there are a lot of parallels of what's going on today mm-hmm. in yeah. in our world. Uh, a lot of, you know, you can't say anything bad about military or people in power. I mean, we just had a, an administration that if you criticize them, they would fire you or mm. <laughs> mock you. Um, there's also a huge homeless population in France at the time, or at least in Paris at the time, and that's that's set yeah. Up there too. was a scene where they like panned over, and it was just all these people around. I don't know which body of water it was, but they're near the docks or something mm-hmm. like that. And it's just, it's not even tents or anything. It's just people all that's sitting it. next to each other, leaning up on each other. It was a good visual to describe the times that they were. Yeah, I did and in appreciate fact- that. In that scene, a woman jumps into the river to commit suicide, oh, and yeah. he goes to save her. And one of the the guys on the side there stops him, and he goes, "What What are you saving her for? Look around you." Yeah, she's actually she better wants off. Out. Yeah, yeah. he he had stops. a line that was said something like that too. I was like, "Whoa, that was real dark." It was, and Zola Zola then he doesn't go and save her, which I thought was really interesting. That he maybe thought of it as a mercy. She wanted this, and so he let her take her yeah. life and he didn't go save her um, and that's kind of I think when his eyes were really opened to the state of the at least the city of Paris if not the country of France and uh, and the state of society at the time um, Agreed. we then we then go to uh, there's a scene where there's police arresting a whole bunch of women yeah I didn't quite understand <laughs> it I was hoping that you did and I was just going to be quiet during this part 
I was assuming that they were prostitutes. I think and so. And that they were arresting them. Yeah, I I think so because we first meet Nana. Yeah. We we only meet her for a short period of time, but she's one of the women that the police are trying to arrest, and she escapes into a restaurant where, uh, where we have a meal. Um, and who? Is uh, it? I think I think Cezanne was there with and him. And Cezanne, yeah, I think so. Emil and Cezanne are sitting there, and they're they're poor, so they're kind of hanging out there, trying to just drinking glasses of water as well. But she comes in, and the owner is shooing her out, and I'm assuming it's because she's a lady of ill fame, although. The way they dressed back then, it's real hard to tell. Everybody looked uh, fancy. Yeah, exactly. He's shooing, sh- shooing her out. The police see her through the window. They're going to try to come in and arrest her. And Emil invites her to sit down with them, trying to you know cover for her. And everybody relents and allow her to stay. And she's kind of like, I don't know what you want from me. I don't have anything to give. He's like, just have a drink. Yeah, and talk. Just talk yeah. to us. Yeah, that's right. And Cezanne draws a picture or does mm-hmm. a sketch of her, which Emil ends up using as his cover art for his book, which he writes about her situation. It's called Nana. Yeah. And that book, that book does really, really well. And I just to want to his talk surprise. About, yeah, to, to his, his surprise. absolute surprise. Yeah. I, I want to talk about when we, because he, he writes this book, he brings it to the publisher, and then we see a scene where, I don't know if it's a bookstore. Mm, I think so. But it's or, just wall-to-wall books. books. The whole wall behind where the cashier is. Then <laughs> what you think of when you go into Barnes & Noble where they have those tables where, like, the bestsellers and they're all stacked up. But imagine every single book is this white no- Nana book. How many copies of Nana do you need to sell? Like, the whole shop was just this one book. My guess, because I thought the same thing, like, this is really odd for a bookstore that they were like, clean out, clean out all of our inventory. Yeah, we're only going to carry as one book. Many, many copies of Nana as you can get. Nana, whatever her name is. And especially not knowing if it was going to do well. (laughs) I think that was actually the publisher. It must have been, right? That my guess is the publisher. But even so, why would they only have somebody who hasn't exploded yet as a writer? Why would you have that many copies? of this one book. But then I don't know if it was the publisher because there was a lady in there shopping and she was getting other books. Well, I think maybe you could, oh, she was getting other books. Right. right. And and whoever she was with was like, oh, put that trash down. And she, she wanted a copy of Nana. Oh, that and guy's, she comes, an she, asshole. Yeah. She comes back in after she loses him and she's like, yeah, and also send me a copy of that <laughs> Nana <laughs> book. Yeah, I like her. Yeah. Uh, so to he, me, I thought it was a, a bookstore. Maybe it was then. And I, I mean, I... Was trying to justify and they just have it as a well. lot of confidence in that one book. <laughs> like, no, this this will sell. Trust me. Let's go into Barnes and Noble, and there's only one book available <laughs> in the whole store. Ah, good. You've got the secret. Great. Great. <laughs> well, I guess that kind of guarantees its success. If that's the only book available, I'm, I mean, that's, that's what people yeah. are going to read. They don't have a choice. This basically cements him as as a writer, and he's still kind of that humble, charming, starving artist because he gets a check for money, and then he goes back and he's like, "Could you, but still, I just, I actually need cash." And I think he's maybe never cashed a check before. So he's like, I just, well, can I? Yeah, he wanted to buy something that he could only buy with cash and he gets a check because he goes in for another. He's been asking for cash advances just to buy basic supplies for he mm-hmm. and his wife. And he goes in for another cash advance and he's really nervous about it to ask the boss. And the boss is making a big deal about, oh, he's asking for money, is he? And <laughs> just like ends up giving him, giving him this letter that he was going to send. And I don't know if you noticed, but when Zola opens it up, something falls out. And I was like, 
the whole scene, I'm like, is he going to see that something fell Me too. Out? I was like, do you think he noticed? Right. But it ended up being the check, which I don't know if that was planned. It probably wasn't, but it was perfect. It was perfect. Yeah, because God. he's reading this letter and he's like, oh, 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 I made money. Oh, there's a check. Oh, where'd the check go? It's on the floor. Yeah. Okay, let me get that. <laughs> Yeah, nice. you know, the check was for what ten thousand francs or something. Francs, ten or twelve, ten thousand. Twelve. I mean, a, something a lot. significant. But he still needed, as you, Patrick, said. He's like, can I still have a little bit of cash? Because I mean, you do need, you do need cash just to get by for the day. Sure. Yeah. Um, but it also just like cements him as a successful writer. Mm-hmm. And and he has a funny moment because it's it's he come, I'm sure you you notice this because this seems like something you would do Patrick but he comes out of the publishers and it's raining he needs an umbrella there's a guy selling umbrellas out there and he's like I'll take I'll take twelve I'll t- I'll take two dozen no 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 I'll just take one I'll I'll just take one it's hilarious I'm just, this, I'm little, just really this little moment yeah I love yeah. it I also want to say I was that guy in New York running around with an umbrella that was falling apart and I'm like I will not get a new umbrella. I will not. This will last. Okay, it's garbage. All right, I have to get rid of this umbrella. There's another nice little transition here, and it's sort of like a solution to the montage. Once he gets, once he realizes that he is a success as a writer, then he just starts writing book after book after book. The government says, please stop criticizing us. And he goes, yeah, I'm going to write even more books. And there's basically a book parade. Yeah. It's a great scene. It's well done. Yeah, it, it's like they put all the books on a Lazy Susan and slowly <laughs> turned it yeah. past the camera and you just see one book after another parade by and it was a great, I don't know, 30 seconds. It was a short little montage But it was still transition. like, oh, oh, this guy yeah. wrote a lot of books. Did he ever he sleep? He did some things. Yeah, yeah I, I looked it up too. It's uh, Apparently he wrote around 14 books. Nice. Which in this montage to me, it seemed like way it more than like that. 50. Yeah. Yeah. So he's doing really well and he's now become those members of society that he's been writing against sort of like the fat cat living off of people and he's having a dinner party and Cezanne comes over and he actually calls him out on it like a really good friend he says listen dude I'm still not getting paid for my art because it's about the art it's great that you're getting paid as a writer but it's now about the money because Emile is walking around going, oh, let me show you all of my things. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And he's very excited, very proud of it, but he doesn't realize that this obsession with with things, with materialistic uh, possessions is now made him stray from his original path in life, or at least the path that he was on when he was younger. And the quality of his work had to have suffered as well. Yeah, I think he just, he wasn't in it. And I, we talked about this before where, you know, when he was younger and he played younger, he was full of this this energy. And once he started to get older and I see it in this scene, he kind of eh, kind of loses some of that energy because he's an older man now and he's more settled and he's got less of a fight. In him. Yeah. When you don't have the passion and the cause to push you, the need to feed your family when you're just sitting back. Yeah. The quality of your mm-hmm. work is obviously not going to be as good. Yeah. And and the thing that changes his life around and and what I think we're most people most know him for, which is that I accuse, which was the title of a letter that he had published in a newspaper directly to the president of France. Some top secret documents were stolen, some military documents were stolen. Clearly there is a traitor in the midst of the military higher ups, and they need a scapegoat, and they arrest this guy named Dreyfus and and there's 
there's no evidence. Yeah. But they arrest him just because one of the one of the officers is like, mm, I think that guy probably would be Yeah. A so thief. Can we also address that we're going along and we're watching this one movie about Zola mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden it became another movie and I'm like, Whoa, wait, what just happened? Absolutely. Zola wasn't in it. All of a sudden now we're watching this military film. Um which heavy military in, film. Heavy, yeah. And in hindsight, it makes complete sense. But at the time, I'm like, whoa, wait, what just happened? I, mm-hmm. I was kind of enjoying the Zola story, but did he die? Like, what what happened? Yeah. Oh, he's um, back. Okay. But, yeah, yeah, right. So, yeah. So we've got, they build up the story of Zola. We know who he is. We know where he's at. He's an older man now. He's comfortable. Then we zip over and we go into the life of Alfred Dreyfus. And like Patrick said, uh, this espionage happens. They don't know who it is who did it, but they also go, they pull out a book, these military men. They it's like, pull it's out like a book the yearbook, of, basically. Yeah. And it's basically a, a book that, uh, it's like a, a roster of people, I don't know if they were captains or what, but people who probably had access to the information that was stolen. And they'd have the name of the person, and it's all handwritten, which I think is cute um it's all handwritten and they have the How name quaint. of the person and then also like a description of who they are and I, they totally just speculate they're like well this person seems like they'd be guilty mm-hmm. and then they're like oh well we'll rule him out and then they go bo- through the book more and they land on alfred dreyfus and the reason why they landed on him was because it said he was jewish so that was really the reason why they went after dreyfus even though he was completely innocent and it's interesting what Hollywood did with this story because that's factually what happened. They basically used him as a scapegoat because he's Jewish and they went, well, we'll just get rid of the Jewish guy. But Hollywood pulled back on that because this was 1937, 1936 when it was filmed, roughly 1937. And any mention of anything remotely Jewish they pulled back because of what was starting to happen overseas mm-hmm. in Germany and in Europe. Yeah. So, so from what I understand, they did actually mention it more in the script about him being mm-hmm. Jewish, but Hollywood took out all of those references. So I believe that was the only, there was maybe one or two other subtle ones, but that was the only reference to him being Jewish and the reason why he was accused was you saw like a close-up in the book of him saying, saying he's a Jew. Yeah. Um, so you understood why, but they also pulled back, like Patrick said, uh, and didn't mention it. it. Was just, oh, he's this guy in the military. He's clearly the one who's guilty, with yeah, no evidence. There's no evidence. In fact, they tried yeah. to pin evidence on him, and they set up this sting, <laughs> which looks like they're all getting ready for a surprise party. Yeah. First of all, it was the they're hiding behind sting. curtains. Yeah. And this, uh, like the. The they asked him to show up military. in like casual clothes yeah. instead of his uniform. Um, and somebody asks him to dictate a letter for him. And I get that they were trying to match the handwriting, but mm-hmm. clearly the handwriting isn't going to match because he's not guilty. We know that as an audience, he's not guilty. But as soon as he finishes writing, they're like, Aha! <laughs> we arrest yeah. you. Yeah. Like, what just happened? Right. This doesn't and make any sense. They do a court martial and he's found guilty unanimously. Unanimously. Which, yeah. Which is amazing that they were even to I mean, I guess everybody was in on it. It must have been. Of course. But still, uh and he's he's literally stripped of rank. 
Oh, uh, that was an intense scene. That was he a marches very out. Intense scene. Yeah, there's a whole procession, and you know, with all of these military men standing in in formation, and then they march him out, and then in front of everybody, they're like, "Oh, we're going to actually dishonorably discharge you and and you know strip him." And there's a man who very aggressively and very opinionatedly. <laughs> <laughs> strips all of his like medals and hat and all of the all of the decor the decor off of his military uniform um he just was, rips them off yeah it was sad it was sad and he's yeah. he's sentenced to uh devil's island which is their I, I guess like a penal colony but i i have i have some issues with this yes so as far as i can tell because we go back to this little shack uh in this prison leaving his go back wife and his times. kids behind too yeah he's left his family yeah. um and there are there are way too many guards around the shack yeah because it, it, it looks like yes so it looks like it's just this i don't know spoil island is what it looks like this devil's island where there's literally nothing there but a tiny nothing. little house right and they all they do a transition where you see the years go by, and sure. their transition to show that years are going by is of this hut. It's a static shot, and then you'll see the year tra- come over the screen, and then there'll be like a wooden fence and like two more guys, two more <laughs> guardsmen. But where are these guardsmen living? I don't know. Then another year goes by, and now there's five guards. <laughs> another Ugh. year goes by, and there's more guards, and there's more wooden fence, but still the same shack, and no place for these guys to live. Oh. So do they just, that's just what they do? They just hung out guarding this one person. It's a very special prisoner that he has that much. I mean, you're, he's on an island, guys. He's not going anywhere. Just don't send him a in boat. A, in a shack. <laughs> okay. Right? Did you guys send drivers a boat today? We did. Oh, damn it. The one Add another thing. wooden wall. <laughs> and another guard. No, send two more. Yeah. So during all this time, uh, Dreyfus's wife, uh, Lucy, she's she never wavers in her belief that her husband is innocent, and he never wavers saying that he's mm-hmm. innocent. So she starts looking for evidence, and she finds some evidence that says that he is actually not guilty. And basically, her last resort is to go to Zola and say, "I know, I know who you are. Like we all know who you are, and you fight for these causes." I need your help. And he resists too. He initially he knew who like, she nah. was. Yeah. Yeah. He she comes shows up at his door and he's like, send her away. But the doorman had already let her in, so he was kind of like, All oh, right, sorry. Fine, let her She's in. already here. Yeah, yeah. He tells her no and she actually leaves and then realizes he realizes that she left her evidence. And this is a th- I have an issue with this kind of stagey stuff in Hollywood. He realizes she left the evidence, so he gets up to chase after her, and he, he's at the top of the stairs, and he sees the door just closing on her at the bottom of the stairs. And he's like, oh, uh, Madam Drep... Ah, uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> I You're tried. too far away now. I can't get to her. <laughs> I gave and it then, all, I get, all I had. That's it. And then he very slowly walks back into his office, and I thought, you could have ran down the stairs, you... Uh, well, he's an old man, and very, yeah. very comfortable. But he then this gives him a chance to go through the evidence, and he realizes that um, there is a case for innocence for Dreyfus, and this is what and there's I mean there's a whole bunch of corruption in the military. He writes this scathing letter, which is tons of accusations against the government and the presidency, and it's called I accuse, mm-hmm. um, and this is this is the thing that I remember 
I've heard of. And basically, now in pop culture, if if you yell that at somebody or or you use that in your script or whatever, it's somebody who is at their last resort. They they have nothing else. Like they know the truth is on their side, but nobody is listening, and so it explodes into this Ooh, I accuse. I'm gonna use that. You know when I feel like I'm not being heard. You should. I'm gonna start using that in in LA traffic. Right? When somebody cuts me off, I accuse. And I'll forget my horn. I'm just yeah. gonna scream out, I accuse. Like at, like at Chipotle when they're like, every time I order carnitas, <laughs> there's always like one little scrap left, and they never have fresh carnitas. I think um, that. Please just yell that out it's in the a middle very, of. Very important thing to me <laughs> that I never get fresh carnitas, and I think the next time I'm at Chipotle, I'm gonna be like, I accuse. You should do it in French. Would be what. J'accuse. J'accuse. Oh, it is. It's like j'accuse. J'accuse. They'll be very confused. Right. I have a very strong cause. I like it. No, no, no. That's fine. Please just record that so I can see it. Please. <laughs> there, there's also a moment in this, which again, I kept saying, I've said before that this had a lot of parallels to today. The the crowd gets whipped up as this case gets brought back. And there's a lot of mm-hmm. men- uh, that mob mentality of, no, we have to believe that Dreyfus is guilty. And therefore, by association, Zola is a bad person and mm-hmm. he's guilty. And there's riots, there's property yeah, damage. They had uh, dummies of both of them that mm-hmm. they hang, I think on a streetlight or something, and they yeah. set them on fire. It's intense. I mean, it just goes to show you how it, that mob mentality is, it's like a lemming thing where they mm-hmm. people get it in their head without any evidence. No evidence. That they, they just, just think that they're right and they go they dive in. crazy over it. Mm-hmm. And it's also worth mentioning that it, you do see in this film that the the uh, military people are, they know that Dreyfus is not guilty. However, they they can't renege on that because... That will make the army look bad, and they can't have any weakness showing in the army. Yeah, the army's infallible. We don't make mistakes. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. So they're willing to send somebody, Oof. you know, off on this desert island in order to keep their names intact, which is mm-hmm. disgusting. And so what they do instead is they charge uh, Zola with libel against the government, against military. And that's what this this case actually is. Um, I always thought that it was a that they reopened the case for Dreyfus, but it's not. He's now on tribal trial for libel against the government and the military. And mm-hmm. so that's what he's basically arguing his way out of for pretty and, much the rest of the movie. Yeah, and it, the court stuff was great. It, it was interesting because uh, during the court scene, I don't know if they in France they consider it a judge, but the man who was presiding over this court case reminded me a lot of the trial of the Chicago 7 judge. Yeah. Right? <gasps> Where they kept bringing up this and this and this. And he's like, nope, strike that. Yep. Nope, nope, nope. You can't oh, open it was this. Non-stop. You can't reopen the Dreyfus uh, case. This is about Zola. And the poor defense had nothing because the judge was kept taking away anything that would give them some sort of argument in this case. Every time. Yeah. And I just want to mention, I, I found out that, um, so Paul Mooney does have this uh, great speech in his defense in during this case. And they consider it the finest moment in this film, which I agree with that. And it's a, it's a six-minute courtroom speech. Mm-hmm. He had to do multiple takes of this scene. Ooh. Yeah. And when he finally nailed it, because like, you know, he was a perfectionist. He wanted to get it right. Um, and it was, you know, they had to film it all the way through. So six takes of that. But upon completion, when he got it right, he received a standing ovation from the cast and crew. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, which I think he deserved. That was I a, think so. I mean, six minutes. It's a study in acting, um, mm-hmm. too, because because the character he's i mean yes of course he's gonna stay in character the whole time but it is a long scene and it's such an impassioned i don't want to say plea just an impassioned speech that he's giving yes. throughout the whole time I'm, i am i mean i haven't seen the other performances but i i'm i'm curious why he wasn't up for best actor uh, uh, but or, didn't or, he get a nomination i thought he got or not, not why he wasn't up why he didn't win for best actor ah, sorry right. Um, but I haven't seen the other performances. He's gotten lots year, of nominations so. over the years, man. He, has, he was a really good actor. I, like I said before, I really liked him in this. He and James Dean are the only two actors to win Oscar nominations for their first and their last credited screen appearances. Oh wow! Yeah, there's there's a ridiculous moment which reminds me of also that opening title card where they the military produces this super secret document well they don't produce it but they've got this super secret document that they can't share with anybody but it's secret proof that dreyfus is uh guilty and then somebody comes up and goes yep yep i've seen it trust me we have a super secret document but you can't see it (laughs) and the judges are like well well, there you go makes sense they got a super secret document they're like we can't see it because it's super secret I get it. Those are the rules. I'll make them. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Zola is guilty. Clearly. Mm. Thanks to thanks, Thank goodness for this last minute evidence that we can't see. Yeah, right. <laughs> he is found guilty and uh, he's sentenced to prison, but but his friends are like, get 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 the hell Just out of France. Go to London, Just dude. Go to and he was tempted to stay, you know, because he was, he was like, well, if I'm innocent, then, you know. If I run with my tail between my legs, then that's going to speak volumes. And his friends were like, well, actually, it's going to speak way louder if you can continue to speak just from London. But he had to keep a low profile in London as well. He did. Uh, I mean, people knew he was there, but he, I guess, basically was like a political refugee, but, but didn't ask for asylum. While he's there in England, the military administration changes hands and there's a brand new army administration and they basically reopen the investigation into the Dreyfus case and the administration finds evidence that there was a massive cover-up that Dreyfus is innocent and they know who the guilty parties are and the guilty parties are either dismissed or some of them actually just commit suicide because Mm. they realize their careers are over anyway and they kind of can't live with what they've done to somebody else you know it's a cool scene when he, they're forced to resign. It, it's a great scene when they're forced to resign. What's also, I don't want to say it's a better scene, but I really liked what he was doing, what Dreyfus was doing when he was freed. He's been Oh living, my God, me too. Oh, he's so, so touching. So paint the picture a little bit. Like he, we're, we see him, we're back on, what is it? Devil's, Devil's Island. Island. Devil's Island. And now he's got pure white hair. Mm-hmm. You know, he looks scrawny because he's been isolated and that's another thing it's like man if he was isolated for that long his mind must have been gone but yeah go ahead and describe it because like i i was really moved by and i i don't know if this was a choice by the actor or if this was a directorial choice but it was awesome but i understand why he won best supporting actor um they they open up his cell and let him know that you're you're free you're you've been found innocent you've got your freedom they open up his cell and then they open up the door to the little building that he's living in basically saying you can go outside and so he exits the cell and walks to the door and he cannot physically step out of the door he's struggling with himself because 
he's been in prison for so long, it's almost as if he forgot what freedom is and that the jail is his home. And he goes back to the cell several times. And I, at first I thought, oh, he's going back to get something. Maybe letters that Lucy, his wife Lucy wrote him or something. But no, it's you can see him struggling with, I don't know what to do with oh, freedom. My interpretation of that scene was different. Really? Yeah. What was yours? So... I saw that, like, okay, he's got this pardon in his hands, and he steps out of his jail cell and goes to the door and stops, and then he goes back to his jail cell. And at first I thought, too, oh, he forgot something. But then he steps out of the jail cell and does it, like, three times. And to me it was he wanted to experience that feeling of stepping out of the the jail cell like that was oh my God, let me do it again because that felt so amazing. Isn't that interesting how we interpreted it differently? That's really interesting. Yeah, I love that. That's really that's really lovely. That thought. Yeah, because I, I, I want to remember all these this. emotions. Like it almost would be worth watching it like that scene again to mm-hmm. to see if I see it in your perspective and vice versa. Same. Uh, he eventually does leave, which is which is great. He gets up the, the either the courage or he has uh, experienced it enough. Uh, the the feeling of stepping through that uh, cell door and he he does leave and he's reunited with his wife. Um, and his family, who, which by is the amazing, way, does not looks age. exactly the same she as she did when he left. <laughs> she didn't age at all, and I'm he's so all glad. white. I'm so glad you saw that too. He looks she like he's 104 a and she's 32. She is actually decreased in age <laughs> and looks better than when he went in. So yeah, just keep that in mind. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Dreyfus now has got this fire under him, and. This is, I, I, I said this before, like we have a nice bookend now. It's that energy he had from the beginning of, and, and when he were first started writing, he's in it again. And he's got all of oh, these ideas. Zola? Oh, sorry, Zola. Who did I say? Yeah. Dreyfus? Oh, Dreyfus yeah, has no energy. By the way, they reinstate Dreyfus to the military. Oh, yeah. They put and him make in him a, a uniform. Captain? Yeah. And they gave him a promotion. And I'm like, man, if I was him, I was thinking in my head, if I was him, I'd be like, F you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. But Give me no, my you. money for all of the years in my life that you yeah. destroyed. Give me lots of money. I am never working again. And you guys can go F yourself. But he stood there and he was, it was really amazing because he looked so thin. I don't know if he purposefully lost weight for the for the scene or not, but he was in this uniform and he was just swimming in it. I mean, I wonder if that was a costume choice too, that they Could made be. something slightly too big to Which show that he's a little more gaunt. Yeah. So, but he's, re, like you said, he's reinstated. Um, and then Zola is sitting in his home in his office, just and, and brimming with ideas. They, everything he says, he, he he says something, he's like, oh, that's good. I should write that down. Yeah, I'm good. He's kind yeah. of reveling in his brilliance, but also really excited about what the future holds because he's he's got that and youthful fire again. Writing very, very harshly, like just like using that pen and like digging into the desk as he's writing because he's so like into it. Unfortunately, um, he, he dies from... Uh, I think it's carbon monoxide poisoning. Yeah. At the time, they had heaters and they were old, kind of coal-burning stoves. Yeah. You know, similar to Wood what he had in the beginning. Or whatever. Wood burners. Yeah. I think there was coal in this one and there was a leak in the mm. pipe. And we see him just sort of slowly, just very slowly and very elegantly slip away. You knew it was coming, but it was, it was. I thought it was nicely dumb the way they it filmed was. His death. It wasn't yeah. very cheesy. Or yeah, because they did a, a close up of him writing feverishly, mm-hmm. and then it kind of slows down, and then it slows down, and then it stops. But you and don't actually stops. see him die. And then the very last scene is is 
uh, Zola's funeral, which again feels like it's all being looked at from <laughs> this one angle. Yeah. A lot of these and scenes, so when you look people. at them, there's so many people, but a lot of these scenes, when you look at them, you get the sense that where you're standing, there's nothing. Right. And so instead of this being a full room, it feels like a two-thirds filled room and that there's this <laughs> void where you are. And everybody just really likes each other. <laughs> yeah. Why are you standing over there? Is there something I don't know. I, don't I know. just, I feel comforted. Weird. And this, um, this film, I guess, was considered highly contentious in France, and it wasn't granted a proper release until 1952. Whoa. Yeah. So wow. ooh, it's saucy. It's I mean, I mean, it does stepping on toes. Yeah. It it paints France in a very not so nice light. Yeah. Hmm. It's not all croissants and brie and baguettes and wine berets. Although so that's, that's kind of what I thought it was. Wow, so that's, we just stereotyped France. It's all the best things. Bonjour. It's all the good stuff. <laughs> to our French listeners, There's and no you know who you are. There's no political stuff happening there, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> all right, Lauren. Um, while watching this movie, were there any lines, and I know that Zola has a ton that he thinks are amazing, but are there any uh, lines from this movie that just stuck out to you? Yeah, I think I was pleasantly surprised on how Paul Muni played Zola he was he was very charismatic and he had a lot of funny moments which were necessary for a film of this magnitude Mm -hmm. and this you know tone and when he first meets Nana when she when he invites her to sit down at the table she she, you know he he's like oh have a drink and she's like she says well what do you want from me I have nothing and he goes well we have something in common then (laughs) nothing (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, oh, that was really funny. The way he, he said it was great. I do like that. Yeah. We have nothing in common. Nothing. I like that a lot. Yeah. That um, was my favorite. That's a good one. My my favorite, to me, is kind of a funny line, um, but it's not meant to be. He throws this back um, at his early publisher, and, and there's a, a, a person who comes in and says, like, you, you, can't, you can't write books anymore because of the content. And he throws this line back at them. He just says, you will not like the smell of my books. Oh, I remember him saying <laughs> yeah. that. And I thought it's it's a really funny line just by itself, but it's such a such a well-crafted threat. Yeah. I liked it. Yeah. I liked that yeah. too. It did stick out to me. Yeah. Yeah. Good choice. Good Thank choice. You. Thank so you. Patrick. Yes. Well, watching this film and if you were, I don't know, suddenly struck with a thirst. Ooh, yeah. Mm. I oh, am now what? a little. And you walked over to your bar. What would you be so inclined to drink? I wasn't sure because the only thing that they were drinking in this was cognac. And I thought, okay, it's also France and it's wine and things like that. Um, but I did a little research and was looking up stuff that they would have drinking, drunk Drinking. Drinking. Drinking in the roughly 1860s. And there's a drink called the Blue Blazer. Oh. Yeah. So it's basically a hot toddy, uh, but you mix the alcohol in one cup, and then you mix boiling water and sugar in another cup. You light the alcohol on fire and slowly mix it back and forth so it caramelizes the sugar. And you burn your eyebrows. Burn your eyebrows. And then you you stamp out the fire and pour it into... Oh, I can't wait you for want. you to do this one. Um, Can and, I be there uh, that night? <laughs> I already did it. I did it last night. Oh, you did? It's It actually has a smell of apple juice, but has a really sweet, but not overly sweet taste. It was actually really a good drink, but didn't well, wasn't overpoweringly. Well, you're going to make this for me at some sure. point. <laughs> well, what about you, Lauren? I chose, yeah, I chose the French 75 because it's French, but also because uh, I went out to uh, 
Vegas this last week, and oh, we went did to you? Paris, and we yeah, and a friend of mine ordered a French seventy five. I'm like, oh yeah, that's a good drink. It is a good so, drink. Yeah, and that one's pretty easy with gin and. Uh, lemon juice and simple syrup, and then you just top it off with champagne, which is very French. I love it. So, yeah. I love the French 75, and it has yeah. a kick. It does. It has. That's a tasty drink. An absolute kick. Good. Yeah. Good show. I like that. Yeah. High five to both of us. Yeah. I think yours is better because yours is on fire, but. Well, I mean, anything on we fire. We could light mine on fire. We could try. I, I think we probably could light it on fire. <laughs> well, I think that about wraps it up for us here and uh, Zola and Dreyfus. So thank you for joining us. Remember to rate, subscribe, leave a review, follow us on Instagram at the Award Goes to Podcast. And on the next episode, we'll be talking about another win for the former Poverty Row Studio Columbia <laughs> with, with the national treasure, Frank Capra, and his You Can't Take It With You. Because you can't. You can't. It's good, good advice. Thanks. And I, I just really like Frank Capra. So leave it at home. Why are you guys taking it with you? Exactly. Especially these days, because they'll make you check your bag. Yeah. Or it could get stolen. (sighs) It could get stolen. Just just leave it at home. That's where it's supposed to be. Or a safety deposit box. If you want to get fancy. I was in that show in high school. Safety deposit box? (laughs) (laughs) It was a one-man show.